Okay, so part four of guardrails. So if you have just jumped in, today's your first Sunday again, let me say you're so welcome. We're so glad you took the time to come to church today. If you're part of our family, hey, how's it going? And uh, we, are, we have been doing this series of the last kind of four weeks, just talking about the importance of boundaries. And again, if you're new, when we talk about guardrails, we literally mean a guardrail. Like when you're driving down the motorway, that metal barrier inside the road, that's called a guardrail. And what a guardrail essentially is, as defined by the English dictionary, is a guardrail is actually a system that keeps us from straying into dangerous or off-limit areas. And because I know some of you, like me, are visual learners, figure 1.0. Guardrail, put the photo up, in County Tipperary. And there it is. It's a beautiful guardrail. This is the moment in the service when all the engineers start drooling and go, wow, look how straight those lines are. I mean, ergonomically, it's amazing. I'm just wondering what your fellow up there with the boot open is doing. Uh, maybe having a picnic in Canterbury. Anyway, the purpose of guardrails is to direct and to protect. It's fascinating because when people crash into a guardrail, not only does it stop them you know, veering off a cliff edge to their certain death, but usually the way the technology works is it also minimizes damage to your vehicle, which if you like what you drive, it's an important thing, but more importantly, does minimal, as minimal damage as possible to your life. And we've all seen examples or heard stories or seen where guardrails are effective. Or we've heard stories where people crashed and there were no guardrails and maybe the worst case that happened. The point is, in this series, we realize our lives need guardrails too. Like our lives need, like relationally, we need some direction. Come on. Because if we just say yes to everything, not everything we say yes to is good for us. We need guardrails emotionally. Come on. Ever been hurt by someone? Ever, ever allowed someone too much space? Ever trusted someone too quickly and regret later? We need guardrails spiritually. And as we're going to fight today in part four, we also need guardrails financially. Now, heads up, just so you know, we're not going to at the end of the service ask you for all your money. Although if you want to do that, by all means, feel free. I won't say no. That's not what this is about. This is about the idea that God cares about what we do with our money, because as we're going to see, usually where our money is, that's where our heart is also. And God wants our heart, as we heard last week. And so we need help. We need direction. We need protection when it comes to all these areas. Now, as I was researching for this message, I came across a very interesting thing. There's a thing in the world, and it's called accidental reporting. And this is where people have accidents and phone their insurance company and try to claim their insurance. So if you're someone who one day has an accident and wants to claim insurance, I'm going to help you right now. Because there's this weird phenomena that when people ring in to kind of justify or explain their way out of an accident, they accidentally tell the truth and take responsibility without even realizing, which sounds funny. Well, wait for this. I got some examples of some accidental reporting. Here's the first one. Coming home, I drove into the wrong house and collided with a tree that I don't have. The other collided with mine without giving warning of its intentions. Like, he crashed into me and never even warned me. Terrible person. I thought my window was down, but then found it was up when I put my head through it. Has to be from Cork, that fella. I collided with a stationary vehicle that was coming the other way. It gets better. The guy was all over the road. Next one. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. 
Now, how many of you can relate to that? Don't put your hand up. Honestly, it's not worth it. In an attempt to kill a fly, I drove into a telephone pole. I hate flies. I get that one. I had been driving for 40 years when I fell asleep at the wheel and had the accident. Last but not least, I was thrown from my car as it left the road and I was later found in a ditch by some stray cows. And they said, moo. The pedestrian had no idea which direction to run, so I ran over him. I mean, imagine out jogging, doing your thing, doing some circles, and whack, you're dead. <laughs> this is the last one. An invisible car came out of nowhere and struck my vehicle and vanished. I'm telling you, he was there. It was, it was Batman. It was invisible. And the truth is, the reason why we need insurance, the reason why these things are so funny is because there's a little bit of like truth in it that we all know oftentimes when it comes to our lives relationally, financially, emotionally, spiritually, we, we, we have mess ups, we have mix, we, we have accidents, but really we want to blame everyone else, but we know a large portion of the responsibility isn't the stationary vehicle on the other side of the road, but actually it's our decision making just before that moment when the steering wheel is in our hand. And the point of a guardrail, as we said for the four weeks, is to light up our conscience. It's like a warning system. Like I said last week, it's like when you're reversing your car and you have those reverse senders, you go beep, 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 beep. And it's like nearly, 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 nearly stop. Oh, you've crashed. And my car has the it's really unusually loud beeping, so I'm pretty sure the Martians can hear me when I'm reversing. And like that, guardrails emotionally, financially, spiritually, are like that sensor that are there to warn us when we're too close to danger. Now, because, and this last message, because money matters, that's the name, that's the title for the sermon, because money matters to all of us, even the most, like, disattached uh, person with money in this room, money still matters in your life. Why? Because you can't eat without money. And you can't live without money. And in case you haven't noticed, Ireland has gone mad right now. Every oil, carrots, you can't find a house. It's crazy right now. It wasn't always that way. And heads up, it won't be that way for much longer. But in this current moment, everything is crazy. And we want to talk about this because who you are and what you're going through, no matter what you believe, matters to God. Because money matters to you, you matter to God. How you handle your relationship, if you want to put it, with your money is important. Now, I know if you're here, you're a skeptic, you're not a Christ for watching online, you're thinking, okay, this, I knew, I knew, I knew the one Sunday I come to church, you're going to talk about money. Like you talk to the average punter out there in the street and say, what about the church? Most people say, well, the church, in essence, is two things. It's against sex and it wants your money. Right? How many, how many of you have ever experienced? And the truth is, the church believes God created sex. Like, just a side note. We think sex is great. Am I the only one in this room who thinks sex is great? Honestly, are you kidding me? I think sex is amazing. Honestly, if it was a pastime, it would be my favorite hobby. Now, sex is like fire. It's a good thing. You can cook on it. It can keep you warm. There's lots of good things. But if you take the fire out of the fireplace and put it in the living room, you're going to burn your house down. So I think sex is great. I think biblically the Bible teaches sex is a gift from God, but it's supposed to happen in the context of a monogamous marriage. 
that's where it gets a bit interesting because like, oh, okay, you had me there for a second, but then the old marriage, like, oh, dang. So we think sex is great. It's just where you have sex, not geographically, more who you have sex with. You have sex wherever you want, if you ask me. It's who you're having it with and what you're having. That's really important. That's a sermon from the other day. The second part is, <laughs> you're like, we want to hear more of this sermon. Come back in October. We have one ready for you, okay? October in the whole series, okay? Uh, but the truth is, we don't, God doesn't want your money. Like, like, think about this. If God is who he says he is, a.k.a. the creator of the universe, then why would God want your arrogate? Why does he need your few pennies? God does not want, God does not need your money. But here's the fact check. Most of us, some of the greatest regrets in our lives have happened because we made crappy, terrible decisions about money. This is why we need financial guardrails. We need help. We need, we need to be directed and protected with financial guardrails. Next slide, please, guys. Boom. There it is. So what we're going to do is we're going to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 23. And we're going to look at what Je- just one portion of Scripture where Jesus talked about. Not so much, and again, Jesus talked about money a lot. Not because, again, Jesus needed any money. There's no record ever that Jesus even lifted an offering in his entire earthly ministry. But because Jesus understood the connection, the relation, the correlation between money and the heart. And in one instance, he gets to the root of it in Matthew, chapter 6, and verse 23. And if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can open it. And again, all of today's notes are in the Bible app by you version. It says this in verse, let's go for verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. But you go, I don't have one master, so two is not a problem. Like, what do you mean? Well, what he's saying is that essentially we, we all in some way, shape or form, we all give ourselves over to the control and influence of certain things. Maybe you're here, and again, you're a young person, and you're obsessed with what people think about you on Instagram. So you're not realizing you, you, you're, trying to, you're trying to celebrate your, your things that make you good, things that you, who you are, your life, where you've been. But, but over time, something happens where all of a sudden you need the affirmation of them to feel good in here. That's not a good thing. In that moment, you're no longer in control because you're not a piece of, you're, you're needing something from someone else to be fulfilled in who you are. In that instance, you're giving over mastery of your you know, sense of self-worth, in an essence, to a group of people you don't even know. Well, in context, Jesus is talking about money. He says, either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. Now, the, the Greek language in which the New Testament was written, that word master is the word kurios, and very often it's translated as the word Lord. And it's literally defined as one who, who is charged who, who is basically in charge or by virtue has possession or ownership over somebody else. Now again, we don't live in a culture, thank God. Well, we don't live in it in an accepted sense where slavery happens. But let me tell you, human trafficking is a real thing. That's why the church is against it. And that's why I love hearing Melanie's passion for uh, all the young people in East Timor. But in, in a cu- pervasive cultural sense, you know, it isn't a done thing. And so most of us in this room, we aren't possessed or owned by anybody, or so we think. But when it comes to our money, without realizing it, the stresses and strains of life, the moral choices we make, the jobs that we choose, the places that we go, late night online, our money leads in all sorts of places. And that can lead us to a place of conflict because essentially at some point, we're going to have to make a choice. And Jesus basically concludes a section and says, you cannot serve 
both God, sorry, microphone fell off, and money. So in essence, the question Jesus is asking here is, do we have money or does money have us? Like who owns who? Who's really, I don't know if you ever stopped to think about it. It's like, am I really making decisions for myself or am I reacting because of the fear or the worry in my heart that is driven by money? And so, sorry, I think it's microphone. And the reason why this matters to God is because, especially if you're here and you're a person of faith, you're a Christ, if you're not a Christian or a Christ follower, a lot of this does not apply to you. You might find help and inspiration, but it doesn't necessarily apply to you. But if you're a Christ follower, this is what your Lord, your kurios, is saying to you. He's saying the reason why this matters, the reason why we need financial uh, gyros, is because money and what it promises us is the chief competitor for mastery over our hearts. Like, if, if a poor relationship is, is the second thing that can really compete for mastery over hearts, the first thing, the first thing that can steal our hearts isn't the devil. It's our love of money. It's our, it's our connection to what it promises us. It's, it's that drive, as we heard in the Thomas story, to, to get more money because with money I can become more than I am. If you ever went down that road, you know exactly where that leads you. And again, Jesus' motive and our motive for talking about it isn't that we want anything from you. God doesn't want anything from you. God doesn't need anything from you. But God wants everything for you. And I'll say this, for me personally, as a pastor, like, I, I can't tell you how many times I've sat with a person or a couple and their whole life is falling apart. And a huge part of why it's falling apart isn't because anything's actually bad per se. It's because they're under so much pressure, relationally, spiritually, emotionally, because they had no financial guardrails. Because without guardrails, what happens? Without guardrails, we tend to veer off the cliff of consumption or we hit the wall of hoarding. Like whenever you give yourself over to unbridled desire, whenever you allow your heart to be consumed with unbridled fear, those, those two paths don't lead you into a good place. Unbridled desire is, is the half of the room that say, I want more, I need more, I have to have more. The other half of the room, we struggle with unbridled fear. If I don't have more, if I run out, if there isn't enough, then what happens? And both these, these drives, both these, these desires, both these appetites, if they can be described, because really, that's what they are, because think about it, an appetite is never fully satiated. Like, you're hungry, you eat for a while. And you're hungry again. And, and if, if we're not careful with, with money and how it can have mastery over us, for a while we're temporarily satisfied, but then we're hungry again. And it keeps growing until my, my family know and realize how great I am, until that teacher sees me driving that car, until my village where I came from sees my Instagram account and who my friends are. Like, it's just this, we don't realize it. It's this subconscious drive to show everyone else our worth. And Jesus is saying, listen, your heavenly Father, as we're going to see, knows your worth. Now, the reality is unbridled desire and unbridled fear, they both come from the same root. The root of unbridled desire and the root of unbridled fear is greed. Greed. And none of you would say, I'm a greedy person. Like if I ask you, how many right now, hands up, don't hands up, how many right now, metaphorically, would say, I'm a greedy person. I know some of you right now are like nudging your spouse, like, come on, tell the truth. The pastor's asking, confession time. It's very easy 
to, to nudge the person's arm beside you, it's very hard to say, it's Misha. It's me. Like how many wake up in the morning and go, you greedy little man. You just want so much. You're so bold. We don't. We can we say, oh, fine looking chap there in that mirror. We try, we try, we don't, we, we try to speak ourselves because life is so hard. But the truth is, you don't have to be an evil, melancholic, dictator-like person to be greedy. Every single one of us are making decisions in every moment of our day about should we be generous or should we be greedy? And it isn't just a biblical truth. Eric Fromm, who was a, a German psychologist and philosopher, he, he, he was a Jew during World War II, fled Nazi Germany to America, lived his life there. He knew, you want to know what, a, what it's like to have absolutely nothing, have everything taken away from you? Here's his summary about greed. He said, greed is a bottomless pit which exhausts the person, watch, in endless effort to satisfy the needs without ever reaching satisfaction. I don't, I don't think this man was a Christ follower. I don't believe he was. But this is his scientific, psychological, philosophical summary of greed. It's a bottomless pit that drags you in, puts you on the wheel like the hamster, like keep running and you get that cheese. And you do get just enough cheese to keep running. But you don't realize the price you're paying, exhausting yourself, your soul, losing friendships, losing your marriage, losing yourself. For what? for a few extra zeros and for more stuff isn't worth it. One author, Andy Stanley, he defined this, he said that he, you can define greed as the assumption that's all for my consumption. Like you would say, I'm not greedy when I think of greed as like Ebenezer Scrooge. Remember that uh, famous story? You know, I wouldn't walk by, you know, little old Timmy, come on. It's poor Timmy. And his little stick, you know what I'm saying? Like, come on, Ebenezer, have a heart. And of course, he does in the end. But like, we don't see ourselves as some miserly person. But when you define greed as always making the assumption that everything you have and everything you own and everything you earn is for your consumption, then we all kind of fail the test, don't we? It's like, well, yeah, I mean, when I walk into a shop and I see lots of Krispy Kreme donuts, especially the ones in the belt, I assume that's mine, that's mine. That's mine. I mean, if I was a character in a movie, I'd be a seagull from Nemo. You know what I'm saying? Mine, mine, mine. It's like our first assumption is what do I want? How many of us have ever walked into a place and looked away from the goodies and looked towards the people and asked the question, what do they need? Or better, what could I do? How can I bless? God, you give me everything I need. What, what's your desire? What's your will for me in this place right now? Maybe... God brought you to that place to talk to the person, not eat the donuts alone. Now, God is good. Talk to the person and eat the donuts. But it's got an order to things. Or maybe it's God's called you to, to bless someone randomly. Say, hey, I just want to bless you with a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts. So you're thinking, man, hurry up. We need to get, we need to get over and get some Krispy Kreme donuts. This is true. And the truth is, and even if you're here and you're a Christ follower, even as Christians, sometimes we spend or hoard our money, even though we say believe in God, even though we say we worship God, even though we say we follow God, when we look at how, as we look, as we look at our relationship with money, we spend and we hoard as if there is no God. Because, again, this is only for you if you're a Christ follower. If you're a Christ follower and you trust God and He is God, then everything you need has been provided before you were even cognizant of the fact that you needed it. 
Like, by the time you became aware of the problem, God's like, I've already got the solution. Like, you just copped on right now. It's kind of like as a parent where sometimes you watch kids. Like, you know, my son yesterday morning walked out of the house, and I knew he's only like one and a half, almost one and a half. He wanted to walk down the drive, and our driveway is all full of, like, pebble-dashed stones. So he's, he's, he's about to, so I automatically, as a father, could see where he was going before he could see, grabbed his shoes. So right got to the edge of, like, you know, where, where, the, where the kind of uh, concrete is, I was able to pick him up and equip him for his journey. Before he even knew he needed what he needed to make his journey, his earthly father, our li- my limited experience and vision could see, I already had what he needed before he realized there was a need. When you're a Christian, that's what it means to have faith. I don't know, as Thomas said, how and where and when, but I know why. God loves me and he is good and he'll provide for me every single time. Now, that's the way we all should be. But listen, I, I'm with you. Most often, when, when, when there's a scenario, a challenge, a bill that comes in unexpectedly, or something happens, we all freak out. And what's the first thing that we do when we're sidelined, blindsided by some financial thing, like we're hit with a bill or a fine or whatever? The first thing we say is not, God, I love you, or God, I need you. The first thing we say is, what am I going to do? What am I going to do to get myself out of this bottomless pit? See, we have this scenario of where when things are good, when life is great, as we say in Ireland, when you're on the pig's back, which I have no idea why it's a good thing, but when you're on the pig's back and life is good, you know, we live as if there's no God. That is, of course, until we experience trouble. And the strangest thing happens to Christians, and even those of you maybe here who are not Christians, the strangest thing happens to people when they're in real trouble. Because when they realize how much trouble they're in, this really strange thing happens. It's called prayer. People who don't even believe in God pray to a God they don't even believe in, asking him kindly for his help, which is kind of crazy. And then... If they think or perceive or believe God didn't help them in the way they wanted, then they take that as evidence that the God they didn't believe in before they prayed didn't actually exist, and therefore as evidence, and now their belief is even more affirmed. And you're going, what? Like, imagine being in that kind of marriage. Like, I want you to, everything I want you to do, and you have no choice. Uh, no choice. Uh, this marriage is over, you're a terrible husband. Give a, guy a, give a guy a chance. Like, give God space to work. Because what happens is we example, we pray as if there is a God. The truth is there is a God. But God is not interested in what we want so much as interested in what we need. Not about you, but it's in that moment where we pray and we say, God, I need your help. I need your help with a bill. I need your help with a fine. I need your help with like college fees. I need your help with... And listen, over the 20 years I've followed Jesus, I can't tell you how many times I've come before God and said, God, I need your help financially. I, I just don't know how I'm going to do this. And in that moment, there's this interesting reality check takes place because it's in that sense, where, in that moment where you go, where has my faith been before this moment? Because if I'm coming to God, like, with like a, as, as they say in American football, throwing a Hail Mary pass, like I'm just going to shoot a prayer up and see what happens. And if no one answers, I knew it. And if someone does answer, oh my gosh, God is real. And sometimes I know people who, I mean, that's how I came to faith. I 
just tossed a prayer up. I said, God, if you're a man, show yourself. <laughs> Good old Irish prayer. And I didn't even expect it happened. And now all of a sudden I felt God's presence. I felt his, his love and affirmation. I went, oh my gosh, like, this is crazy. And from that moment, I just gave my life to Jesus. But a part of that is also a recognition, a taking response to the fact that maybe up until that point, the reason why we're in financial trouble is because we've made decisions previously, not under the guidance or advice, standards or wisdom of God's word, but according to what we desired and according to what we were afraid of. And we realize, man, in that prayer, what we're actually saying is, God, I chose the wrong master. None of us are truly free. We're all subjugating, subjecting ourselves to the influence of something else, whether it's general fame and opinion, whether it's peer pressure. Most of us, and all this money, like I said, is a huge part of life. And the truth is, in those ones, we realize that money cannot save us. Like money is great when you have lots of it, but when you have none of it, it's very hard to be happy and be content. It's very hard when you get a report that money can't buy you health. And you realize, man, money is great, but money is limited. It's that moment we have to ask the question, have I been serving the wrong master? And again, let's be honest. What we're saying to God is, God, I want you to act. I want a miracle. I want a breakthrough. I want something to happen for me. Come on, God. I deserve it. It's me, Jamie. I know 24 years ago when I was nine, I prayed to you. I'm back. You owe it to me. I'm a good person. Come on, I've never asked for anything. I'm asking you, God, just this one time, please let Lewis Hamilton win the World Championship one more time. Please, God. Please. I mean, Trump is crazy prayers. And God's like, I want to bless you and help you, but I, I can't give you what you want in the way you want it because what you're asking for isn't what you need. It's again like as good parents when our kids come to us and they're, all, they're like, I really have to have this now. I like my whole life depends on this one lollipop. Like right now. Oh, man, I miss being a kid. It's like, I need it now. My life is over. And it's like, listen, you're going to be fine in 10 minutes. Okay, this, this, this is the perspective of, of maturity and longevity. And, and even though you as a parent, a good parent, want to give your kid nice things, you know that giving your kid everything they want just because they want it when they want it is not a thing that you want to encourage in your kids. That's not going to work well for them in life. And our kids basically say to us, like we said to God, I want you to act. I want you to give me what I want, but I don't want your advice. Well, this is why we need financial guardrails. And so what I want to do is shift gear. I want to get practical. So because again, this isn't some trick to get someone out of you. I really want to help you. So how do you then take this principle? How do we, how do we actually, like, where are the handles? How do I put this to work in life? Even if you're not a Christian, how does this benefit you? Well, very simply, here's a, here's a basic idea I want to give you that hopefully you'll leave today and will help you and bless you. And if you're hopefully one day going to be married, have a job, open a business, whatever, I hope this will be something that will bless you and help you and something you'll be grateful that you implemented in your life. And basically what I want to talk to you about is, 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 is order, priori prioritization, choices. When we are mastered by money, without, without realizing this, maybe you don't have, never written this down, what we believe, what we do, is we take 100% of what's given to us financially. And the first thing we think is, I want to live. So I'm going to buy, 
and consume and eat and travel and spend. And sure, look, whatever's left over, I'll throw it in the piggy bank for a rainy day. You know, and, and oftentimes it's spare change. And then giving is like, well, if, if I have two or three euro in my pockets, sure, I'll give it away. Aren't I a great person? And, what, and the problem with this model is, is what we don't realize is that when we, when we give ourselves over to this influence, we're actually mastered by money. Why? Because the primary purpose of money in this system is so I can live. But how much life do you want? Where's the limit? Where are the boundaries? Where are the guards? Like, your car has four wheels. I have a car that has four wheels and four-wheel drive, and it has a raised suspension option and all-terrain features, so I can drive a lot of places. But just because my car can go off-road and drive up a mountain doesn't mean I should do it. It's good to have it. There may be times to take a risk and go on a wild side, but just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And the problem with our culture right now is we are so bad at doing that. We're like, if I can, what's the harm in it? Like, it's almost like in our generation, if someone wants something, no matter how good or bad it is for them and for other people, just because they want it, they deserve it. Like, how is that ever going to do us as a society any good? And again, I'm not against having things or having fun or living life. I don't think that's what Jesus meant. I think God created fun. This might blow your mind, but God created crack. At least the Irish version of it anyway. Fun came from heaven, not hell. It's a God thing. God wants us to have fun. Sure, he gave us sex, like I said. He wants us to have a great, great time in life. But when we devote ourselves or give ourselves, if we keep if our, our whole life becomes about just, just trying to satisfy our innate and immediate desire for things all the time, then what happens is, is we choose stuff over people. We choose a high over a marriage. We choose status over being a present father with our kids. We choose the, you know, the, 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 the moment rather than saving for the future. And all of a sudden, one day we find ourselves in a bottom place. So what's the choice, you ask? That's a great question. So what do you do? Well, if we invert this, so being mastered by money means I live, I save, I give. But mastering money is the opposite. You start with giving. But you go, what? Yes, you have to explain why. Then you save, then you live. A very simple system that I've lived with my, for my, my entire adult life, and I've taught all of our young leaders, I teach my kids, and I want all of you to consider this, is what I call the 10-20-70 rule. Okay, 10-20-70. So God teaches us that when we honor him by giving 10% of what we earn to him, it's called a tithe, there's blessing. And again, if you're not a Christian, you don't have to do that, okay? So don't worry. There's no pressure. Do the heck, whatever heck you want. But it is good to be generous. And the question becomes, if you're not a Christian, how much should I be generous? And the answer usually is, well, as much as I feel generous. Well, the other question becomes, well, how often do you feel generous? Then you're in trouble. Better to make a choice up front and commit yourself to that. Now, that's if you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian, the choice has already been made for you. Because God has commanded that you should bring to the storehouse the tithe. And then above and beyond that, as you give, that's called an offering. And God, God honors the tithe, but God blesses the offering. This is basic stuff. God honors the tithe, but he blesses the offering. Okay, so, so we start off by saying to, to God, to the world, to ourselves, the first action 
in my expenditure is I'm going to be generous. Listen to me. Listen to me carefully. Even if you're not a Christian, making a decision to make your first act generosity has, come on, it has got to be good for you. It's somehow it's got to work for you. The second thing you do is you take 20%, roughly speaking, it could be 30, 40, and you save it. You put it in a place you cannot get it easily. Don't put it beside your bed. Don't put it under your pillow. For goodness sake, don't leave it in the car. Don't put it in your Revolut count where you can tap, 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 tap. Like, find a treasure chest, lock that sucker up and bury it in the ocean. You know what I'm saying? Like, get as far away from that money as you can. Because one day, that's a wedding fund. Like, how about, rather going into debt for your wedding, save now. How many of you young ladies who are single in the house would love to meet a man? It's like, hi, my name is whatever, fill in the blank. And uh, I've been waiting for you for my whole life. By the way, let's get married and the wedding's already paid for. <laughs> going to the chapel and I'm going to get married. I mean, come on. It's simple as that. Uh, you heard it from me. And then whatever's left, live. And you think, oh man, like, gosh, will there be a... Listen, God can do so much more what's left when you start with generosity. But God cannot bless a lifestyle that starts with greed. God can bless generosity. He can multiply, but he can't bless greed. Now, the way I do it with my kids, I'm going to show you a picture of three jars here. At home, I've got a, a jar. And I give my kids pocket money as they do their chores. And I teach them, we're going to give first. So they get their little pocket money, take out 10%, put an envelope in the kids' church. I want them to have that in them from day one. Maybe they'll grow up, and I really hope one day they follow Jesus and serve him. That's the most important thing as a father. But their path is their choice. But I want them to have a foundation of generosity. And with that one, have a foundation of wisdom. They're savers. And then, you know what? Have the crack. Buy whatever you want. So recently we went on holidays. And what the cool thing about having lots of kids is you see lots of personality types. And you see how different you know, our kids use money differently. Well, one of my kids is really good at saving. Like, he's so good. So we got to the end of the trip. I'm like, I won't tell you which one is which to protect her, her, I don't know, dignity. I said, how much you got left, son? I actually owe you five euros. Cheney Mac, okay. So you're negative five. How much you got left? I got 10. Oh, good man, good man. How much you got left? 100 quid. That's more than me. Where did you get 100 quid from? I've been saving. Now, what do you mean? Every time I went to a shop, I looked, I touched, I cried, I mourned, I put it back and I left. <laughs> he should be preaching today. You know what I'm saying? Like, and of course, Jonathan's one, he just eats everything. So if I gave him money, he just eat it. But we teach this kid because it's good. And I want you to consider this. Look at your bank account. Look at your life. Look at how you're controlling your money. And what I consider from today, going home and saying, listen, from now on, at least try it for like, I don't know, six months. Try it for a time. I'm going to give. I'm going to save. I'm going to live. And if it doesn't work, well done. Come and tell me. Say, listen, you're wrong. Okay, I'll shake your hand. Fair play. But if it blesses your life, it could change your life. It could change your future. This kind of stuff can save marriages because it's very hard for a marriage to fall apart when both parties in that marriage, their primary concern is not greed, but generosity. Not how can you be a better husband? How can you be a better wife? How can I be a better husband? And draw out of you the great wife that's in there somewhere. Deep, deep down, no joking. Um, 
It's very hard for a relationship to fall apart when there's margin. When all of a sudden you get hit with a bill, it's like, okay, I have savings. I have a rainy, do you know what? A rainy, like think about this, a rainy day fund. I mean, there's 365 days in a year. In Ireland, it rains for 360 days a year. So really in Ireland, a rainy day fund is like a whole year of savings. Well, it's great time to be here five days of sunshine. That's it for the whole year. And live. Because, and let me just begin to bring this thing to a close. We're going to pray. Because here's the truth. Here's the truth that we don't often realize and remember. I need to remind you of today. We are all going to run out of time before we run out of stuff. You're going to run, the most important commodity that we have is time. And every single one of us, more than likely, in this, in this Western world of ours, is going to run out of time. You're going to leave your stuff here. And people who you not even like or know or agree with are going to take your stuff and get rid of it and make money off it. And they're going to buy more stuff. And then their time, as this perpetual rolling ball of, of craziness. We, we can buy more stuff, but we cannot buy more time. The key to being independent financially, the key to breaking the grip, the key to having financial garras is, is separating ourselves from the belief that life equals stuff. Life does not equal stuff. Life equals time. Time of my life. How much life you got left. He lived for, she lived for. You go to a grave, John, someone, born, died. Our life is time. It isn't the amount of years that we have in time. It's not a time in our years. And God wants us to maximize our time. But for us to live real life, we've got to break the grip of stuff. It's independence from this idea that who I am is what I have. It's independence from a lifestyle that relegates God just to emergencies. In essence, it's independence from a life that is independent of God. It's choosing. I'm not going to be mastered by stuff. If I'm going to be mastered by anyone, why not give my life to a kind, benevolent, loving, forgiving God who gives us purpose and meaning, who leads us out of selfishness and greed and brings on this amazing adventure of making the world a better place. Honestly, I'm, I, I don't want you not to have stuff. I, I don't want you not to own stuff. I want you to own your stuff. I just don't want your stuff to own you. I don't want your life to be decided by money. Master your money means you give first, 10%. You save second, at least 20, and you live on the rest. And if you can't afford to live or have a lifestyle within what's left, don't do it. Because even though you might sacrifice your saving and your giving to have more stuff, it won't get you more time. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either hate one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So as I finish, I pray, as we close off this series today, I want, I want, to, I want to cause you, I want to, I want to provoke you into thinking, who's really in charge? Are you making choices that, that are best for you and your life and your family and your future? About time and purpose and legacy? Or are your decisions being unhealthily affected? Because it's definitely a factor. By money. God loves you. God is a good father. God promises to provide for you if you trust him. Being a Christian or a Christ father doesn't mean we're religious people, part of some thing. It means we're children of God. 
And we find in him every week the hope that we sung about at the beginning. We find not in money or the world or job or status. We find that hope in Jesus. And I want to bring you back to Jesus today. Not, em- not just emotionally and spiritually and relationally, but I'm bringing you back to him financially. I want to make a decision today to say, God, you know what? I- I'm going to take this advice, this wisdom, and at least give it a go. And if you're a Christ follower, and I'm just going to be very, very blunt for a second, if you're a Christ follower, maybe you need to repent. Because you have taken the position of God over your money and it's not yours. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian because you said at one time, God, all of who I am and all of what I have is for your glory. And if we're not careful, with time, almost all of what I have, almost all of who I am is for you. But this little bit here, that's for me. Today God is saying, I want both hands because I want all your heart. So I'm making a decision today. God, as we start a new month, back to school, all this stuff, I want to start afresh. Not just emotionally and spiritually. I want to start afresh financially and honor you in the first place. I want every single one of you to be the most generous person in your family. I want every one of you to be the most generous person in your workplace. I want your legacy to be that you are the most generous person the people who knew you knew. Because that can only be a good thing, right? And I want you to see God's hand in your life, in your marriage, in your future, your business, in your community, and whatever God's called you to do, because you, like God, love, and therefore you give.